If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 121. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Brent, who many of you have met. He preached here a couple of years ago. And Brent is, is only 53 years old, but he's a bit of an old soul. And by that, I mean he, he, he thinks like a man much older than he is. Has no time really for social media. He only recently uh, created a, a Facebook account so that people in his church could have another avenue to reach out to him. Um, he cares nothing about fashion, uh, still wears t-shirts that he had back when he was in college. Uh, and the music that he likes to listen to when he's driving around in his car, believe it or not, he likes to listen to opera. So he's driving around, he, he's listening to opera. Um, again, he's a bit of an old soul, and, and because he got married a little bit later in life, I think he was late 30s, uh, approaching 40, he spent some time in his late 20s and early 30s traveling abroad. So he's been in some 82 countries, and, and when he would travel to other countries, what he liked to do uh, when he was younger is he would hitchhike from one country to another. Now, keep in mind, this is before 9-11, and th- this was a different time in the world, and I'm not advocating this for anybody, but this is what Brent did. He would hitchhike from one country to another. And one time he was in West China hitchhiking, trying to get to Pakistan. His older brother was teaching uh, English there. He wanted to get to see his brother. And so he took a couple of short rides. You know, someone would give him a ride for 20 or 30 miles or kilometers. And, and then he did that a few times. And then waited, nothing came along. And a guy picked him up on his tractor in West China. So he gets on this tractor. You know, he's going along. There was a communication gap. They couldn't really speak to each other. And then all of a sudden, instead of going to Pakistan, he took a left turn down a dirt road into the desert of West China. And Brent said, okay, I don't, know, like, how do I, I don't know what to say. I can't get this guy's attention. Just kept going and going. And then finally, abruptly, the guy motioned for Brent, okay, you got to get off. It's time for you to get down. So Brent gets down, and, and he realizes... I'm in the middle of the desert in West China, and the sun's going down, and there's nobody around for tens of miles. And he said, as he tells that story, he said, I really thought I was going to die. I mean, I I thought my life was over, and I pleaded with God to send someone along uh, to rescue me. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? I don't mean stranded in West China in the desert. I mean... Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've realized you're at such a position of desperation that if God doesn't do something, if God doesn't intervene supernaturally, you may not actually make it. You may not survive. Maybe it wasn't the threat of physical death, but a situation where by all accounts things seemed hopeless. Maybe you or someone you love was diagnosed with an incurable, inoperable tumor, a disease for which there is no remedy. Perhaps you were abandoned by the person you trusted the most, father, mother, husband, wife. My heart breaks for single moms uh, whose husbands uh, leave them, sometimes with kids to fend for themselves. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you've been there and you know what that's like. Maybe you were in a spot financially where you were given an eviction notice and you just didn't have the financial resources. And you were told, you must be out of your place immediately. Maybe your little girl told you that she is no longer your daughter but now wants to be considered your son, wants to go by a different name. 
or perhaps less dramatically, maybe you've come to that place in your parenting of your teenagers where you thought, I, I don't know what to do. I have no idea how to get to the heart of my son or daughter. Now, maybe none of these situations describes yours, but you've had others where you felt hopeless and, and totally helpless. If you've never felt this way, you can rest assured you will. You will, at some point in your life, maybe sooner than later, come to a place where you have no idea how to resolve your current predicament. What do we do in those times? How do we put words to our groanings? How do we approach God? How do we process what we're going through? This is our fourth week in our series in the Psalms, and what we've seen is the Psalms were the songs that the people of God sang when they were lonely, when they were tired, when they were exhausted, when they didn't know where to turn, when they were at wit's end. And not only that, the Psalms were the songs that Jesus sang when He was lonely, when He was exhausted, when He was worn out, when He was frustrated, when He was in anguish. How many times do we see Jesus actually quoting a psalm throughout his ministry, even expressing the anguish of his heart on the cross? The psalms are also the songs of praise, giving thanks to God for his deliverance. They, they show us how God's people respond, how they interact with God during, during all the, the various trials of life. And then, of course, more importantly, they show how God responds to his people. In Psalm 121, where we are this morning, we have one of the so-called songs of ascent. There are 15 songs of ascent from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and these are traveler's songs. These are, these are songs for the journey. They describe a traveler going up a mountain, typically going up to Jerusalem to, to worship and to make sacrifices to the living God. These were the songs they sang as they made their, their pilgrimage three times a year as, as the prescribed Israel festivals that we see in the Old Testament. And so Psalm 121 is really a complete unit. So let me read the whole thing in its entirety. Here reads the word of the Lord. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and evermore. As I mentioned to you, less than 48 hours ago, I was sitting in downtown Philadelphia, and then after a one-hour and 47-minute flight to Birmingham and a 90-minute drive home, uh, there I was in my living room uh, doing my normal stuff. Pretty easy trip, uh, frankly. Well, travel wasn't so easy in the ancient Near East in Old Testament times. Travel involved loading up a donkey uh, putting on that donkey everything that mattered to you, typically, and then traversing through mountains, deserts, alongside uh, rivers and cliffs, on overgrown uh, paths, dirt paths, sometimes through the night where there would be uh, no streetlights, of course, or, or no GPS, and often 
bandits and robbers were hiding out, waiting to ambush. There was no such thing as what I was told when I got on the plane in Philadelphia, sit back and enjoy the flight. It, was, it didn't exist then, of course. And that travel brought with it all kinds of potential dangers. Not just the bandits and the robbers, of course, we read about this. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is one description of uh, a traveler who was, who was taken captive. But, but not just sickness, but not just uh, travelers or bandits, but sickness, injury, animals, insects, all of those things. So, so travel in that day was a very frightening and tenuous exercise. But as travelers would make their way toward Jerusalem at night, around the fire, sometimes in the day, they would sing these songs together. Sometimes they would sit there and they would sing them collectively as a group of travelers. Sometimes as one separates from the other, only slightly, he or she is singing the traveler's songs, the psalms of ascent. And here we have a weary traveler with his eyes on the mountains, we're told. We don't know exactly what he's going through, but we do know his situation seems to be pretty desperate. What does he say in verse 1? I lift my eyes to the hills. Now, he's most likely talking about the distant, at this point probably out of view, hill of Jerusalem. He's likely in the middle of a long voyage, perhaps even wondering if he'll make it home, wondering if he will be able to survive the elements. And he sets his focus on Jerusalem because that was the place where God dwelled. But what does he say? From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He knows something critical here. He knows he doesn't have to make it to Jerusalem in order to be in God's presence. Right there where he was, God would meet him on his journey. He doesn't say, I find my help at the mountain or in the hills. He says, the mountain is the place from where my help comes. His goal was the city of Jerusalem, but his confidence was not in a place. It was in a person, the living God. He looked beyond the mountains, beyond the hills, to the heavens, beyond Jerusalem, to the God who actually made the heavens and the earth. And what he's doing here is, in a a very poetic way, he's, he's referencing God as the maker of heaven and earth as a way of highlighting what we call the doctrine of God's providence. Now you see in the word providence what the word provide. Providence is a word that describes the way God is constantly and lovingly and actively providing for His people. It's not some cold and esoteric doctrine, but incredibly comforting for the believer. God is always at work. He's always at work for your good and for His glory. He is always moving and stirring and moving people around and clearing out obstacles and paving the way for the people he loves. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that... Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Which means that we can be patient when things go against us, 
thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures, Heidelberg continues to say, are so completely in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. So the comfort that this weary traveler has as he's making his way to Jerusalem, as he's pressing on in spite of opposition, is that as he cries out to God, the maker of heaven and earth, this God is continually at work for his people, moving things and people around, again, giving us good things. And he has all the resources at the wor- of the world at his disposal. Here's our first point. As creator and provider, God's resources are unlimited, and He continually and graciously dispenses to us all things for our sustenance and enjoyment. You know, we talk about how God, we sing this song, and it's a reference to another psalm, how God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And it's a beautiful psalm, and it's a great reality. But here's what makes it even more beautiful. God is not a hoarder. You know what a hoarder is? You ever been to somebody's house, you got to tiptoe around the old magazines and newspapers and trinkets that they swear are antiques. So you're kind of tiptoeing around, no place to sit. God is no hoarder. God delights in giving to his people. In fact, the first thing we see about God in the Bible is that he gives. God creates not because he needs something, or because he's missing something that would fill out his existence. No, God creates because he loves to give. God creates because it's actually a very God-like thing to do. God would have been perfectly content. Do you know this? He would have been perfectly content if he never created. There's a song that we don't sing because of uh, Pastor Chris' theological uh, uh, brilliance, and that is there's a song that says that God didn't want to be in heaven without us. That's silly. God didn't need us. There was never at one moment where God thought, you know what, if I just created some people, then maybe I'd have some friends around me and I'd feel better. That's not the way it worked. God creates because He loves to give. He created people in His own image that He would delight in giving good things to. He loves to provide for His people. Again, there's that reference to God's providence. I'm reading a a new book that came out in 2020 by retired pastor and theologian John Piper called simply Providence. And uh, he says, in the book, Piper says that even though for decades, he preached for 35, 36 years, whatever, he always believed in God's providence and he rested in it. He said he's recently learned to, to see things differently. He used to look at God's providence as static, and now he sees it as dynamic. He used to look at, he say, I'd be jogging, I'd be walking or jogging in Minneapolis in the morning, and I would look and the sun would come up and I would say, what a, an amazing thing that God would create that sunset, which of course is true. But then he came to the realization that God didn't just create that sunset. It's not simply he makes a new sunrise every morning. He never stops doing it, he said. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. Here's what Piper writes. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite, and never grows weary or less thrilled with the work of His hands. Even when cloud cover keeps man from seeing it, God is painting spectacular sunrises above the clouds. 
So think about that. God is always, at every moment, active. He's always working. The writer of Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his hand, his power. He's always working. And it's, it's with that vision of an ever-acting God, a never-tiring God, that the psalmist could see God as his personal and very present help. Now look at verses 3 and 4 again. He says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Shortly before he died, uh, the legend Johnny Cash uh, released a handful of albums under the label American uh, Recordings. And it's kind of interesting. There, right five or ten years before he died, he released a, a number of albums. Some were covers of other artists' writing. Some were originals. Um, well, one of, the, one of the albums that he released, actually he finished it right before he died, and it was released three months after he died. He would say in the liner notes of the album, this is my favorite album I've ever produced. And it was an album called My Mother's Hymn Book. And in it, he, he sings the songs that he learned as a young child, uh, the, the hymns that his mother taught him. And in, in, one of those, in one of the songs on that album, one of the tracks is called, I Shall Not Be Moved. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I sang the uh, song to the Price is Right game, and I, I'm not going to dare try to uh, do a Johnny Cash impression. That would be foolish. Um, but the lyrics go like this, in his love abiding I shall not be moved, and in him confiding, I shall not be moved. Just like the tree that's planted by the water. It's hard for me not to sing. I shall not be moved. It's not a song of independent confidence by any stretch. It is a song recognizing the promise of God to his children. God will not allow our foot to stumble. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we won't fall or fail or go through pain and hardship. It doesn't mean we won't ever lose a job. It doesn't mean we won't ever get COVID, suffer heartbreak, experience tragedy. Of course not. This is not the promise of a pain-free life or even the promise of a successful life by the world's standards. This is a li- this list, the list of ways we will suffer in this life is endless. But in the midst of those struggles and those failures and those difficulties, God will not let us be lost. See, God has this big overarching plan, a plan of redemption to, to restore everything that's broken, everything that's lost, to buy back everything that's held captive by sin and death and hell, He's going to restore it all, and as part of that plan, he's preparing a place for the people he loves, the people he's chosen, and he will bring them to safety. He promises he will. In fact, six times in this short psalm, the writer uses this Hebrew word shamar, which is a word that, it's a really strong word that means to keep, to preserve. Six times, it says, God will keep you. The Scottish theologian Andrew McLaren says, This psalmist is so absorbed in the thought of his keeper that he barely mentions his dangers. With happy assurance, he says over and over again, the one word which is his amulet against his foes and fears. Six times in these few verses does the thought recur that Jehovah is the keeper of Israel. And I love that next phrase, and of the single soul. God is the keeper of the single soul. If you belong to Him, 
His eye is constantly on you, and he will not let you fall away. If you're in one of those dark places this morning, maybe in your family or your marriage or your job, or maybe you're just, just going through something, you know, you're, you're just in the middle of something, you can know for sure that there is a God, he is always active, and he promises to keep those he loves. He is the protector of your soul. Again, this is no promise that God will immediately fix your circumstance or your situation, but there is a promise that he will pour out his grace on you. He will pour out his love. He will preserve you. He will keep you to the end. He will personally minister to you by the Spirit of Christ. And then as you pray, he may very well deliver you from the circumstances, the predicament that you're in, in a way you never expected. I know if I don't finish this story that someone will lovingly uh, chastise me at the end of the service. So let me tell you what happened to Brent. He was, he was left in the desert to die and actually thought he was going to die. He really did. Pleaded with God to send a rescuer. He said a couple of hours after he was dropped off, the sun was right. There was just a little sliver. It was getting dark. A Turkish army came by known as the Uyghurs. Familiar with this? This is a U-Y-G-H-U-R-S. Picked him up, took him to the border station, and insisted that he eat what they made for him, some dog stew. Now, for you pet owners, look, don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just telling this is what he said to me. A surprising deliverance indeed. So sometimes God will deliver us in ways we never expected, but this is not a promise that he will, that he will remove us from our situation but that he will keep us close to himself. Now, this is not a temporary sort of provision. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Doesn't mean we won't die, of course. Everyone dies. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is a reference to the eternality and the constancy of God's watch care. His watch care is endless. As I said before, I mean, God doesn't really have eyes, but we say he'll, he'll never take his eyes off of you. I mentioned that we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago. Well, one night after dinner, it was Janine's parents, Janine's brother and his family and our family, and we were all sharing those, uh, the time I lost my kids stories. You know, you ever had one of those in a restaurant, um, in a store? And so I, I share with them, years ago, I was at the mall with my youngest daughter. She was two at the time. And I looked down at my phone to check some sports scores, you know, very important thing to do as a dad. And so I was checking to see some sports scores, and all of a sudden I heard this ding, ding, ding. It was the doors to the mall elevator closing with my two-year-old daughter in it. So I ran, started pressing the button uh, frantically and furiously which Janine always reminds me, doesn't make the elevator go faster. But I was pressing it as fast as I could. I got in, went up, came back down, jumped in the elevator, no child. Went up, opened the elevator doors, no child. So I'm running around yelling for Julia, yelling her name, going in stores. I'm not going to leave it there. I could, though. That'd be fun. Uh, but I was going in stores, and I was just, and finally I found her. She was under some 
rack of clothes or something, you know, just having a blast. Um, well, here's the thing with God. He never, ever takes his eye off us. There's never a point where we're under a uh, sort of clo- clothing rack at a store or we're out in the desert or wherever we are. There's never a point in our lives when he's not constantly and actively watching us. And not as a helpless God, but as an active, loving, caring Father. In fact, the psalmist says in multiple ways, multiple times, he doesn't even sleep. The one who keeps you will not slumber, verse 3. Now, I think there are two reasons he brings this up, that God doesn't sleep. One is this is a pointer to the reality of God. That is to say, the existence of God, the power and reality of God. Over and against the false gods of the day, the Baals, who were mocked by the prophets as needing to sleep. Right? Remember Elijah, Mount Carmel. They're calling out to the, to the gods of the Baals, and, and, and Elijah says, well, maybe, maybe he's on vacation. Oh, you know, he's probably just sleeping. He's, he probably needs a rest. Give him a two-hour nap and then come back to him. So one of the reasons I think that, that the psalmist mentions this is to point out that, that God is real and active and alive. But there's something else going on here. And I think it's pretty profound, actually. Why else would God mention, or does the text mention that God doesn't sleep? I heard a lecture last week from philosopher and theologian David Filson. Filson was a pastor for many years. In fact, still is a pastor, but in God's good providence, he found himself as the pastor and spiritual advisor of the, uh, the largest Christian school in Tennessee, one of the largest in the nation, Christ Presbyterian. And Filson, he, he works with students, young adults, all day, every day, basically. He said, they never knock, they come in, they sit on my couch, they ask these difficult questions. And he said that the mantra or the philosophy of many young adults, many young adults is forget the binary. Now, actually, he said it's another F word, but I'm going to say forget binary. That's the mantra, forget binary. What he means is any sort of forced choice between fixed options is angrily denounced or mocked. We don't have to choose, he hears all the time, if we're male or female. We can be somewhere in between. Forget the binary. We don't have to choose if we're attracted to one sex or another. We can be attracted to anyone. Forget binary. We don't have to choose between right and wrong. There is no such thing. Reality is found in the middle. These are the binaries that many reject. But, but would you believe, according to Filson, these are not the most, po- most common binaries that are rejected, although they're very, very common. It's not the areas of gender or even sexuality where there's the greatest resistance. Do you know where the line has been blurred to the greatest danger? Where binary is rejected most angrily. Here's where it is. Not, not just young adults. It's the rejection of the distinction between creator and creation. This is a binary distinction that that not just young adults, but many people in general want to muddy or even eliminate. We don't accept divine authority. We don't accept absolute truth. It's only my truth that matters. Have you heard that before? We accept no lawgiver. There is no black and white as it relates to ethics and morals. There's only gray. As I heard one person say recently, we're all part of the same universe. In some ways, we're all divine. But this is the height of arrogance and stupidity. 
The idea that there's no distinction between God and us, that there is no absolute authority, that there is no lawgiver, that there is no such thing as right and wrong. And not only that, it's absolutely philosophically inconsistent as well. We don't, it can't possibly be true. We don't have time to get into that this morning. But a world without absolute truth and no lawgiver leads to chaos and anarchy. But back to my question, why does the psalmist mention here that God doesn't sleep? And I believe it's this. This is a reminder of the creator-creation distinction. What do you do at night when you're tired? What do you do every night? You sleep. What do I do every night? Sometimes as early as 10 o'clock, I sleep. And every time we lay our heads on the pillow, we're meant to remember we are not God. He is not like us. We dare not claim to be God. We need sleep. We wear out. We get tired. We get exhausted. God is indefatigable. He never gets tired. He never experiences fatigue. He never sleeps. He is not like us, and we are foolish to think for a second that we are like Him. And this is actually very, very good news. Here's the second point. Here's why it matters so much. It's precisely because God is God that He can be trusted at every moment of our journey. I mean, think about it this way. If God were a man, how could we trust Him? If God were still trying to figure this thing out, how the world works and what's coming down the pipeline next, and why would we pray to that God? If God were not all-powerful, if God could not see every one of the 7.9 billion people in the world, then why would be assured, we would be assured at any moment He sees us or furthermore cares about us? If God were spiteful like men and women can be, if God were passive-aggressive, fickle, up and down, all over the map, why would we cry out to that God? But he's not a man. He is the all-powerful, glorious, self-existent God of the universe. And it's precisely for that reason that he can be trusted. Now, I want to think about this psalm in light of where we are today. It wasn't just the ancient Israelites who were on a journey. The Bible presents all Christians as on a pilgrimage. We are strangers in a strange land, we're told. The Bible describes Christians with words like wanderers, aliens, sojourners, exiles. Now, of course, in a way, this earth is our home. In a sense that it will be restored by fire, made new, purged of sin, and we will live forever on a new heaven and a new earth. And you've heard me say many times, and other pastors and elders, we're going to live on a new earth. We're not going to be floating around playing harps around the clouds. We're going to be doing earthly things on a new restored earth. So in some ways, the earth is our home, but it's been taken captive by sin, death, and evil, and terrorized by the prince of the power of the air and his minions, which is why, in part, so much hatred and anger and suffering and pain and injustice and evil, the world is under the curse of sin. Which means that not only do we experience hardship, which we do, but we also, not only do bad things happen to us, we also do bad things. We fail. We hurt the people we love. 
We say things we wish we could take back. We think thoughts that we'd be ashamed of if anybody else knew. In a thousand ways, we fall short of God's glory. We constantly disobey the greatest command, and that is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born with a sin curse, so we do the very things that we desperately don't want to do. And we feel the weight of our rebellion. So where do we go? Where do we turn? Where do we look for help with that predicament? Well, there's another hill from whence our help comes. There's another mountain we look to for the truest form of healing. Because 2,000 years ago, there was another weary traveler on his way to Jerusalem. Only he would ascend that hill not to make sacrifice to God, but to be sacrifice for his people. As Jesus, the Son of Man, stood at the bottom of that hill, the hill known as Golgotha, the place of the skull, he knew what awaited him. Instead of finding safety at the mountain, he would find horror. He too would cry out to God, where is my help? Where will my help come from? And he would hear in return, nothing but silence. There was no help for him in his distress. In the terror of the night, when the sky turned as black as a solar eclipse, the Son of Man would be rejected by God. The sins of the world heaped on him the sinless one, your sins and my sins. The perfect father would pour out his wrath on his only son so that by believing in him, we could be forgiven of all of our sins. You know, at Easter time, we tend to emphasize the physical pain and anguish, the brutality of Jesus' death, and surely it was an incredible and violent and brutal death. But do you realize there have been plenty of other Christians who have been killed in more gruesome ways. But none had God's wrath poured out on them. None bore the brunt and the weight of the sins of humanity. This is what made the cross so devastating. So here's our final point this morning as the psalmist is looking forward. Jesus made the ultimate pilgrimage, surrendering his life on the hill of Calvary for the sake of the people he loved. As the one true God-man, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And it wasn't just His death that made us right with God. Jesus' whole life was a pilgrimage made for us. For, For 33 years, He perfectly obeyed every single command of God. See, as preachers and theologians, we often emphasize what we call the passive obedience of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, But it was also his active obedience. It was Christ living for us, obeying for us, so that by faith, God could see us and regard us as perfectly obedient. Because of the perfect record of Jesus, he obeyed every command of God, satisfied God's law in entirety, so that we could be considered blameless, so that we could be justified, looked at as though we have never sinned. by the holy God of the universe. And I hope, I hope desperately you've experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ. I hope you're not rejecting the call of God to repent and believe in the one He sent.
if you are, you are in a wilderness this morning you will never find your way out of. If you reject God's provision in Christ, you'll never find your way out of the predicament that you're currently in. There is no hope for you in greater self-awareness. There is no hope for you in looking inside and trying to find some inner beauty or inner strength. There's no hope for you in trying harder. There's no hope for you in making New Year's resolutions or mid-year resolutions. There's no hope for you at all in your own strength or ability. But because God sent His Son, the perfect wandering journeyman, the one who would live a perfect life and die on the cross, you can receive complete and total forgiveness so that when God looks at you this morning, He sees you as a perfect son or daughter. If you've trusted in Jesus, God has brought you to Himself. He is your God and you are His child. And nothing will ever stand between you and Him. He delights in you, and as the psalmist makes clear, He will sustain you. He will keep you. He will watch you. He will look over you. How can you know for sure that God will keep you afloat when everything around you seems to be crashing in and the tidal waves of life threaten to take you under? Here's the answer, if I can paraphrase the Apostle Paul. The one who did not spare his only son for you Will He not give you what you need to walk on the path to the mountain? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great text of Scripture this is. And what a beautiful psalm. I pray that you would strengthen our hearts by it. I pray that you would comfort our souls by it. I pray that you would stir at the level of our nafesh, that our total being, a greater awareness of who you are and what you've done to deliver us. Lord, I want to pray this morning for someone who may be here who's outside of Christ, maybe uh, made a profession as a child, maybe was even baptized, maybe even serves in a ministry, but is not really trusting in the finished work of your Son. And Lord, for the one who's here who's a skeptic, not really ready to submit in faith to Jesus, will you do the work that only you can do? Will you bring about salvation today? And for the one who is, feels like a, a wanderer in the desert right now, the, a figurative desert where there seems to be no help in store, no way out, I pray that you would comfort him, comfort her, stir within that person's soul a greater awareness of your mercy, your kindness, your faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, whatever stage that we're in in our lives, and our spiritual journeys, I pray that you would point us forward to the great feast we will enjoy with Jesus, to the great time where we will laugh and sing and dance and do all the most wonderful things without the presence of sin, when we will feast in your presence forever. Help us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.